Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. First dates, police interviews, doctor-patient communication and commercial sales, they're all driven by talk, and an understanding of how talk works is crucial for success. This month, Elizabeth Stokoe explains how conversation analysis reveals the systematic organisation of talk. This is a talk about talk. It's a talk about language, communication, conversation, discourse. It's about the science of the social interaction that drives our daily lives, from the mundane settings like telephoning to make an appointment at your GP, through to the more dramatic settings, for example, being interrogated by the police. It's about conversation analysis and what conversation analysts do. We start with recordings. Hundreds of recordings, and then we analyze them, we transcribe them forensically, and try to identify the component features that make up complete encounters. Conversation analysis, which is what I do, gives us a scientific approach to studying talk. And what I want to talk about today is how and why conversation analysts study social interaction the way we do. I'm going to start by talking about the remarkable orderliness of talk. You may know the linguist Noam Chomsky. He argued that if we want to understand people's competence, people's linguistic competence with language, we need to study idealized sentences, invented sentences, because if we study real talk, it's too messy. Performance is too messy to study. One of the remarkable insights of conversation analysis over the past 50 years is how systematic interaction is. It's not the mess that we maybe think it is. So I'm going to talk about that. I'm also going to talk about how we identify what is effective in effective communication, how we can use research findings about what works and what doesn't work in communication, in communication training, and also how research findings about how talk works raises serious questions for methods for assessing people's communication skills and training people to communicate, and also, therefore, perhaps upend some of the things we think we know about talk. Now, you might not have heard before tonight about a conversation analyst and conversation analysis, although by the end of the lecture, you might feel you want one in your pocket at all times to help you get through the day. But while conversation analysis is probably not familiar, you might know about the work of behavioural scientists in the UK uh, and in the US, the Behavioural Insights Team, or the Nudge Unit. So I'm going to say something about Nudge. The idea of Nudge is that we can make small changes in environments which lead to big changes in people's behaviour. Now, Nudge is in the territory of traditional psychology and economics, and conversation analysis is in some other academic territory. But there are some interesting connections between nudge and conversation analysis, and the connection is in language. So I want you to think about the last time you were in a hotel and in a hotel bathroom, and think about the sign that you might have read in the hotel bathroom encouraging you to reuse your towels, probably for the sake of the environment. Now, those messages in hotel bathrooms are quite effective at getting people to reuse their towels. 
So something like, you get 35% compliance. But if you put a different message in the hotel bathroom, you're even more likely to reuse your towels. But the message is something like this, which is a more social norm-based, personalised message. 75% of people in this room, your room, room 402 or whatever room you're in, reuse their towels. You're then 44% likely to reuse your towels, so it goes up by nearly 10%. <laughs> so there's something there in the language that makes a difference, and nudge theorists are interested in why it is that that happens, and we'll theorise that in various ways. Conversation analysts are not so much interested in the whys, we're interested in that it happens, and how it happens, and what we can understand about what was different in the language that made the difference. Here's another example. Here's some kids going to see Father Christmas. When children go to see Father Christmas, what happens is the parents take them, and they pay for the visit, because at some point, the children are going to get a present from either Father Christmas or Father Christmas's helper, the Santa's little elf, or whoever it might be. And this is a study conducted by Grenny and Maxfield, and they're more properly known online as the behavioral science guys. And their question was, does Santa make us selfish? So what happens is, um, you go to see Father Christmas, and the Father Christmas asks you, asks the kids, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want to get for Christmas? They were interested in, in this question. So what they did, they divided the two, two the children visiting uh, Father Christmas into two groups. So here we have experimental kid, the kid who doesn't quite know what, what's going on in, in the study, and confederate kid who knows what's going on. And we have various experimental kids and confederate kids. And so Father Christmas asks the kids, the experimental kids, what do you want? to get for Christmas. Kid reels off Lego, iPods, iPads, various things like that, whatever it is that they, they want to get for Christmas. Then, experimental kid and confederate kid go off to Santa's little helper, and Santa's little helper is going to offer them the present, and he reaches into his sack, but turns out that of the lovely chocolate that the kid's going to want, there's only one large one left and one tiny one. So Father Christmas's helper offers to experimental kid, which one do you want? An experimental kid pretty much always takes the big one. <laughs> okay, condition two. Father Christmas asks experimental kid, what do you want to give for Christmas? Initially, doesn't compute. What do you want to give for Christmas? Uh, Lego, iPod, iPad. Father Christmas persists and says, yeah, I want Lego, but what do you want to give for Christmas? Eventually, the kids start to explain the things that they would like to give to other people for Christmas. I want to give love, and things like that. And then, and you can hopefully see where this is going, the kids go off to Santa's helper, and when offered the large or the small teddy, now experimental kid in the second condition is going to offer the big teddy to the confederate kid. So again... The interest for a nudge theorist is in the whys. Why does that happen? We can theorize it, we can psychologize it, we can have theories of why that happens. My interest is in, it, is in that it happens and how it happens and what was it about the language that made the difference. Now I'm going to show you a conversation analytics study. So although this comes from a quite different discipline to nudge, it actually shares some interesting features. 
So this is a project conducted by colleagues in the States, John Heritage and others. And the background is this. You go to the doctor, you've got more than one thing you want to talk to your general practitioner about. Somehow you leave the consultation and you only talked about one thing. How did that happen? So in the States, they have obviously a different kind of healthcare system to, to we uh, in the UK, but nevertheless, what happens is people are dissatisfied Patients are dissatisfied with the fact that they seem to have gone to the doctors, the more than one thing they want to talk about, and I only talked about one thing. And it's also inefficient because it means that the patient has to go back for a second visit. Now, doctors know that this is an issue. So when doctors are trained to open consultations, they're trained, first of all, to open the consultation with an open question. What can I do for you today? But when you look at interaction between doctors and patients, that typically elicits one concern, like a main reason for the visit. Now, because doctors know that patients will often just present one thing and then somehow not say anything else, the doctors are trained to ask a follow-up question after the patient has presented the main reason for their visit. So they're trained to ask, is there anything else I can do for you today? It's in the manual, it's in the communication guidance. People know that doctors need help with this, so it's in the guidance. And why wouldn't somebody, in response to, is there anything else I can do for you today, if they had something else, why wouldn't they say it? The reason is, as conversation analysts, we know that questions that contain the word any in them prefer a no. And I don't mean a psychological preference. I'm going to use this word prefer a couple of times. It's just that when you look at questions across loads of settings, any questions, what typically happens next, structurally, regularly, routinely, is a negative response. And I don't mean, again, negative in an evaluative way, I just mean that you typically get a no happening next. So, given that we know this, the conversation analysts devised an intervention. So, in the two groups of doctors, the first group asked the question, the, the standard question, if you like, the one that's in the training. So here comes the doctor. All right, I understand about the sore throat and swollen glands. Before we deal with that, are there any other things you'd like us to address during this visit? Okay, the one from the training, the standard thing that doctors are trained to ask. The intervention was designed with conversation analytic know-how in it. So what's more likely to get people talking, if anything, tends to get a negative response? So the intervention contained the word some. And if you think about something like being asked, do you want any more cake? You can't say, yes, I'd like any. But you can say, yes, I'd like some. So the idea is you put some into the question, and then it just affords a yes response. So you can try this out at your next dinner party. There's a slice of cake left. You want the cake. <laughs> so you say to your guests, any more cake? Because you know that that's designed for a no. But there's a slice of cake left, and you've had enough cake. You're OK to give the cake away. Some more cake? So you can try it out for yourself, see if it works. So here is the sum intervention. All right. I understand about the cough and runny nose. Before we deal with that, is there some other issue you'd like us to address? during this visit? Now, conversation analysts aren't behaviorists. But what we are able to identify are regularities, patterns in responses. 
Bearing in mind, though, that people can always resist the grammar of a question, the push of a question, or whatever it might be. So, in the any condition, 50% of patients who had more than one concern said more. But that meant that 50% of patients who had more than one concern did not say more. No, that's it. In the some condition, 90% of patients who had more said more, meaning only 10% of patients who had more didn't say more. Yes, well, I also have a skin thing on my arm. So, this is a statistically significant finding. It's a one-word difference. It's a small thing, a small thing to change in the environment, but it has a big impact on a consequence, a big impact in the trajectory of the interaction. This finding also tells us something quite important, which is that things that get into training enshrined in a manual could be completely wrong, are completely wrong. Even though it sounds totally plausible that if you put, said, is there anything else, that people will just say that there is anything else and they will just list it out. But it turns out talk is more powerful than that. To give you another example, I'm working with neonatologists at University College London at the moment. And we're looking at a dramatic setting in, in someone's life. And this is a setting where it's encounters between neonatologists and parents of extremely premature babies with a bad prognosis, the babies are going to, going to die. And the talk is about withdrawing life support treatment. So these are conversations in which the doctor is going to talk with the parents and they are going to decide this withdrawal of, of life support treatment. Or talk about quite how that's going to work. Now, when you look at the guidance, for doctors to have these conversations with parents. The guidance emphasizes that conversations must be it, containing things like, we recommend things in the best interests of the child, that the best interests of the child are the most important thing. Which again, of, of course, of course the best interests of the child are important. But when you look at the way decisions are initiated, decision-making conversations are initiated, they tend to happen in one of two ways. Either the doctor makes a recommendation in the best interest of the baby, or they, make, they start it in quite a different way. They'll say, we're going to defer the decision. We don't need to make a decision right now. I want you to go away, think about things, come back with questions, and these are the options. And they will list out the options to the parents. And you might be able to imagine that in the first set of decisions, when the doctors make a recommendation in the best interest of the baby, if the parents want to ask anything at all that isn't following the doctor's recommendation, they're immediately in conflict with the doctor. And they're also somehow not acting in the best interest of their own baby. Whereas in the other setting, in the other, in the other way of, sort of doing these decision-making uh, conversations, it's much smoother. And of course, what you want in a setting like that is for the conversation to be as smooth as possible. So again, this, what this tells us is that the guidance is wrong. And what conversation analysts do is we start with the world. It's out there. We want to go and record it and find things in it and point at them and say, this works, and, and that's where the guidance should come from. Having presented a few of these studies so far, it's going to give you a first insight into how systematic language can be, particular forms of language, systematic, and they have particular and systematic outcomes. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit more now about the remarkable orderliness of talk. Think about yourself in any encounter, at the supermarket checkout. We know how that works. You, you know when you're at the supermarket that you start off with hellos, and then there might be a little bit of chat about something that probably they've been scripted and, and told to talk to you about, and then there'll be a question about, do you need a bag? And then there'll be, have you got a card? And, and we know what things go along the way when we're at the supermarket. If you think about yourself with a GP, again, you know that it starts with greetings, and then it moves to why you're there, and then there might be a question inviting you to say more, and there might not be, and then there'll be some diagnosis and some advice and then something else. So these conversations have a, a, land, a sort of architecture to them, a landscape. And I like to think of these architectures, these landscapes, as being a bit like a racetrack. You can use a golf course, if you like, as your preferred analogy, but I just want you to get the idea that we start at the beginning of an encounter with our recipient or recipient, and then we move around something which has got distinct projects along the way. So if you think about yourself on a first date, that's going to look a bit different to what happens at the supermarket. And you can imagine that there are different projects that happen along the way as you move around the encounter. And sometimes there might be hurdles along the way, things that are going to knock the interaction off course. So I'm going to show you a particular kind of racetrack, a moment, a key moment from a racetrack. This is from some work I did a number of years ago now, looking at people on speed dates, first dates. So these are, for those of you who don't know about speed dating, what happens is that it's generally a heterosexual event. Women sit around or in fixed positions, and men move from desk to desk, from table to table, and they have a five-minute encounter, you have a five-minute speed date with somebody, and then at the end, if you both like each other, then you might be ex the, the organisation will exchange your, your details. So what's on the speed dating racetrack? You start by saying hellos and who you are, and you might talk a bit about what you do for a living, and then you might talk about something else, and, and then other things crop up along the way. And maybe you'll go online before you go on a speed date to get advice about the sorts of things that might be on that particular racetrack. So here's a little bit of advice online about what you should avoid on the racetrack. There are certain things you certainly don't want to um, talk about, ask questions about, and certainly not make jokes about. Uh, previous relationships, anything like that, any sensitive issues, you want to steer clear of. Okay, so avoid talking about previous relationships. This is, the, this is the advice online. But it turns out that relationship history is a key item on the racetrack. When you look at real dates, these are dates between people aged about 30 and 45, so that's probably relevant. The recordings that I'm going to play you are quite noisy because this was research in the wild, so it's <laughs> an upstairs pub. Um, <laughs> And it's a noisy kind of context, and I've also, from now on, you'll hear that the voices are going to sound a little bit strange because I've altered the pitch of them for anonymity purposes. But nevertheless, I'm going to show you what happens when people try to find out each other's relationship histories. Okay, so here comes the first one. This person's going to say, and are you divorced, or...? Okay, someone else is going to do it. Are you divorced then, or another one? Have you never been married then, or have you got children as well, or you're seeing that there's a pattern evolving here? 
I want to say something really basic about this. I could say lots of things, clever, technical, analytic things about it, but I'm not going to. I'm sticking with that the format of the question is very similar, and that they end with this trail-off or doing a certain sort of thing. So we just see that different people, different dates, nevertheless, the question format to establish one's relationship history and the other person's relationship history is remarkably similar. So, it happens elsewhere. A couple of examples from people telephoning double-glazing sales, uh, double salespeople. Would that be in white or...? What type of double-glazing do you want? Would that be in white or...? And then being asked, when we come to visit you, um, is it going to be just yourself we see or is it...? Is it just yourself or is it Mr. Mrs. or...? Okay. <laughs> so, there's something about this question design, which I could say more about, but I'm go going to now. And then the or at the end, which relaxes the, the preference for a particular type of outcome. But what I really want to just say about this is that it's not obvious or common sense. People think studying talk is obvious. This is very easy to understand because it's just people talking. But it's not obvious before you look how it might be that people find out about each other's relationship histories. What they don't do is say, what's your relationship history? <laughs> Actually, I do have one example where someone says, a woman says to a man, so what's your relationship history then? And he says, what, have I had them? Yes, I have. And the date goes badly wrong from there. <laughs> and that tells you something as well, that the way to ask about a relationship history isn't like that. It, it's like this. It's to do it in that kind of way. All right, so we're now maybe starting to get some insights into how you can identify things that might be effective communication or maybe less effective communication. And I'm going to talk a little bit uh, in some detail now about work that I've been doing for a number of years, looking at mediation services. And if you don't know much about mediation services, then you're in a good position to try and follow this next bit of the lecture. Because the whole point of the work that I've been doing with my colleague, Ryan Sickberland, who's over here, is to try and understand when people make initial inquiries to mediation services, why is it that they very often say no? especially to community mediation, where I started off, so people who have got a neighbour dispute, why is it that when they telephone a mediation service, they very often say no to that service? So, hundreds of recordings to different community mediation services for people who are in dispute with their neighbours. A couple of things that are relevant to think about straight away. One of them is, when people are in disputes, what they generally want is someone to be on their side. They want an advocate of some kind, and they want someone to say, you're lovely and they're horrible. You're reasonable and they're unreasonable, and I'm on your side and I'm going to intervene and do something to the other person and their behaviour. So people typically, when they have a neighbour dispute, they will phone the police, environmental health services, the council, the housing, because what they want is for their neighbour to be arrested, evicted, or a noise abatement order or an ASBO. People want something to constrain the behaviour of the party, and they want the professional that they're talking to to be on their side. They don't want to, them to be impartial. Now, for any of you who know anything about mediation, mediators are impartial. They don't take sides. That's their raison d'etre. That's their ideology. So you can now start to see that there might be a potential hurdle in trying to get people to say yes to mediate who are in a dispute. When you look at the openings of these calls, you see again, very systematically, that people telephone and they say something like, 
Um, hello, mediation. I've just been given this number by somewhere else, and they put me onto you, and you do mediation or something? And it's quite clear that they have got no idea, really, who it is that they're talking to. Or, hello, mediation. Um, I've just phoned the police, and they've given me your number. And I don't know if you'd be able to... You do mediation or something? And they don't know what it is. And what you don't see at the start of these calls is someone phoning and saying, hello, mediation, and can I make an appointment with a mediator, please? That's not the type of racetrack we're on. It's quite different from phoning the GP surgery, where you phone up and you make an appointment. That's what you do. And what doesn't happen on the racetrack of a GP call, a phone to your GP, is at some point the GP is stopping and saying, or the receptionist saying, just before you carry on, let me tell you a bit about doctors and what they do and what GP surgery is. That doesn't happen, but it does happen, and it has to happen in mediation calls because people don't really know what mediation is. So, we have these intake calls, and we can find out what happens. And what we can do, I want you to sort of zoom back and think about the whole landscape of the call. And what we're going to do is think about the first project is just you know, opening the call, establishing who everyone is, and then the caller will say what the problem is. And then, moving around, one of the projects is going to be the mediator explaining what mediation is. So we can zoom in on that, look at hundreds of instances of mediation explanations, and then find out what works. So here is a mediator explaining mediation to a prospective client. They need to convert people in these calls. If they don't convert people to clients, then they don't have a business. So here is a mediator doing a very typical explanation of mediation to a prospective client. What we do as a mediation service, we, um, we help people sort out their own uh, differences. So we wouldn't take sides. We wouldn't try and decide who's right or wrong, but would, would try to help you both um, sort out uh, the differences between, between you. Is this an effective explanation of mediation? The answer is in the next turn. It's what happens next. If this caller thinks mediation sounds attractive, then what we'd expect to see is, oh, what relief, that's just what I need. Let me make an appointment. From there all the way through to something like, mm-hmm, which would not, be a, would not sound like they were particularly... Uh, in interested. This is what happened. <laughs> now, two and a half seconds you, before you came into the stream, I thought, well, that's not much between turns at talk. But we know as conversation analysts that a typical gap between two speakers is a tenth of a second or less. And that's not because people need time to think. It's one of the things that people mistake about interaction that we need to process before we can make a response. But you don't need to listen to naturally occurring talk very much to know how fast turns at talk are. This silence is doing something. It's indicating something. And what it's indicating, without even seeing what happens at line eight, is that this caller is not going to say yes to mediation. They're likely to now start to back out of mediation. And that's what happens. So let's see what the caller says. Okay, so I don't think she'd cooperate. Now, this is the number one way out of mediation for people on the phone. And it's something like, the other person is the kind of person who won't mediate. It maintains the logic of I'm lovely and they're horrible. Callers will take every opportunity to negatively characterize the other party, and including here. So... 
The other person is the kind of person you can't talk to, it won't cooperate, you just can't talk to them, you can't reason with them, and that's why I'm not going to mediate it. It'd be a waste of time. Now, if the mediator doesn't know their racetrack, then what they might not know is that this is going to be on it, that at some point, coming up like this, is the other person is the kind of person who won't mediate, and if you don't have something to handle that, then game over, racetrack over, conversation over. There is something, though, that mediators can do, which is quite magical, to get people to say yes. So I'm going to show you the magic. We're going to join the call, another call now, after the mediator has explained what mediation is and is now saying to the caller, does that sound like it might be helpful to you? Here it comes. Does that sound like it might be helpful to you? If it sounded like it was going to be helpful to the caller, we'd expect that to reveal itself. So here we have seven-tenths of a second of silence, which isn't very long, but it's still much longer than a tenth of a second, and it tells us that it's unlikely that the caller is going to do a, oh, yeah, it sounds great, it's a ringing endorsement and a strong uptake to mediation. What the caller is, in fact, going to say is something like, oh, well, it might be, but I'm not really sure about even seeing this girl at all. So she's starting to invoke the other party, this other person that might be the kind of person that you can't mediate with. So here comes the caller's response, and it, it sounds clearer than the mess in the transcript. So it might be, but I'm not too sure at this stage about seeing this girl at all. Um, uh, it might be, but um, I'm not too sure at this stage about, you know, how long seeing this girl yeah. at all. OK, now, I do lots of training with mediators and this is how it works. So if you are now mediators, what I might ask you to do is think about what you can do in 10 words or less to turn around this client, because that's what the mediator is going to do. We're going to go from to absolutely ringing endorsement and sign me up. How do you do that? And what's so gorgeous about what I do and conversation analysts like me do is we're not setting anything up, we're not simulating anything, it's not role-play. What we're doing is looking at the world, recording things that are happening naturally, and then picking something up and going, ooh, look at that. And then like, ooh, there's another one. There's another one. And that's what I'm going to show you. So here is a mediator doing the thing that was like, ooh, look at that. Yeah, but you'd be willing to see two of our mediators oh, of just course. to talk yeah. about it all. Yeah, definitely. Now, there's some overlap here. The caller didn't need a lot of time to process that call. So the caller has heard, but you'd be willing to see two of our m before she starts saying, oh yeah, yes, yes, definitely. So she hasn't even heard everything she's being asked, are you willing to do, before she's in there, oh of course, yes, yes, definitely. So the revelation, if you like, the revealing of the mediator's tacit knowledge. This mediator is experienced. If the most common way out of mediation is to say, the other person is the kind of person who won't, and they're horrible, then logically, the caller must be the kind of person who will, because they're lovely. And of course they are lovely. The oh, of course, is interesting. The caller doesn't just say yes, they say, oh, of course. Oh, I was always willing. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the goody, I'm the nice person. So. When mediators propose that callers are willing, it turns out that callers are willing. 
And this isn't even a question. It's not a, a yes-no question. It's a proposal about the kind of person that the mediator is talking to. So. I'm sure he would be willing to come in and see our mediator. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to see if you would be willing to attend a, a session as well. Okay then, so would you be willing for two of our mediators to call in and talk to you about it all? Yeah, I'm more than... Is that something that you would be willing to do? I would, I would be willing to do it, yes. That's great. Just do anything just to try and get the things done, you know? So... Some of these are now family mediation. So I moved away from community mediation, started looking at family mediation. And it turns out that the same types of explanations work and don't work. Uh, and the same sorts of things to get people to say yes work and don't work. Here's a, a final example from a family mediation call. Uh, and here, the, it's a family mediator who was written a couple of months ago to a potential client. Um, this is a divorce case, a child custody kind of issue. And the mediator has clearly written a couple of months ago to the dad, and nothing ever happened. So now they're following up with a phone call and saying, basically, I wrote to you a couple of months ago, are you interested in mediation? And we'd like to see whether you would come in for an initial mediation information assessment meeting, which is what their first meetings are called. So here is the mediator saying, anyway, this is what I was just phoning to talk to you about. Anyway, it was just about making an appointment for you to come in for a mediation information assessment meeting. Okay, so if that's something that is immediately what the dad wants to do, it's like, oh yeah, I've, I remember that now and I'm very keen. We'd expect to see that. So okay, that's lo not looking good. And then he just responds. Right. <laughs> okay, so you can all hear that even through the strange intonation that's not sounding that enthusiastic. And then the caller starts to describe how he thinks mediation would be a complete waste of time. My brother went through a divorce and he said he found the mediation a waste of time. And maybe my wife just do not get on. Okay, so he's starting to invoke the wife, the other person, so it's looking like we're heading down that resistant territory again. The mediator, however, carries on and explains mediation in the way that is more effective for a start. So you saw an explanation of mediation that doesn't work. And the explanations of mediation that don't work when mediators say things like, we don't take sides, we don't judge people, to someone who wants a person to be on their side, you can see why it doesn't work. So that, the sort of ideological explanation of mediation, our philosophy, it doesn't sell mediation. What works is to explain mediation as a process. So this happens, and then the next step is this, then this happens, and then this happens, and then we find a solution. And people will go with that. So the mediator's been trying that, but you're still not getting a lot of uptake from, from the caller. So here it comes. Now, that, that meeting is initially with yourself and the mediator, and the mediator will explain to you what the mediation process is about, and also to tell you what your other options are. Would you be willing to come in to see our mediator for a chat? Initially... It's going to look unlikely, now that you've learned about tenths of the seconds of pauses and, and so on, we're going to get quite a long gap here, so it looks like it's probably going to be a no. So one and a half seconds, it's not looking good. But then you get this turnaround. Um, yeah, well, yeah. That, that's really good, thank you. Go on then, I'll do it. So what we've found is that willing gets the strongest uptake compared to alternative formats. So sometimes mediators will say things like, so is mediation something you'd be interested in? And we see that that gets a weaker uptake than willing. And we also find that willing 
gets complete turnarounds from no to yes, where alternative formats do not. Okay, I'm going to show you one more setting now, a different setting, where willing, or the same verb, is working. And this is research conducted by a colleague at Warwick Business School, Nick Llewellyn. And he videoed people in an art gallery. And I've, I've anonymized the video here, but hopefully you can still just about make out two people, com customers, coming up to a desk a bit like this as someone sitting behind the desk. And the customers are going to come in and pay for a ticket at the art gallery and then move into the exhibit. And Nick videoed the encounters from people walking into the door, coming up to the desk to pay and walking into the exhibit. Again, with that initial scientific interest in anything, really, that could spring out and, and be interesting in, in the interaction. But he focused on this moment when people are paying. So I want you to imagine this will probably be a familiar kind of thing to you. So you, you come up to the desk and you're, you're going to pay entrance fee to an art gallery. And behind that guy's head on the wall, the person taking the money, is the list of prices. And customers are very good at putting themselves in the right price bracket. So adult, senior, unwaged, student, family, and people will ask for the right ticket. But it's as if people were blind to the fact that right next to the column of standard prices is another column of prices, which are the gift aid prices. So adult is £8, gift aid is £8.80. So people come up to the desk, they don't seem to see the gift aid stuff, and they just look and they sort of say... Uh, adult, please. And that means that, zooming out again and thinking about the overall landscape of these encounters, one of the things that is on the racetrack is a project, a question about, well, but what, which adult do you want? Do you want the, the standard one or the gift aid one? Because there's two adult tickets. But people don't do that. They come up to the desk and they just ask for adults. Now, the two people that you're going to see talk first have got a voucher, so they're paying for one adult ticket. And it turns out that the person behind the desk, whoever it is, there are different people behind there, but they tend to ask the gift aid or standard ticket question in one of two ways. So here comes the first way of asking the question. This is also a bit of a noisy recording in the wild type of recording, but you should get it. On the ticket you're paying for, would you like to gift aid that today? That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is like this. Would you like to gift aid that today or just pay the standard? <laughs> so all the good conversation analysts in the room can see where this is going. So let's see the outcome. Yes, yes I will. Versus? Standard, please. So, again, this is something that's just lying around there. No one, the, the, the organisation isn't focused on how to get more people to pay gift aid, even though it benefits them if people buy gift aid or pay the gift aid price. They didn't have that interest, and Nick didn't have that particular interest either. It was just there to be, to be discovered. So it turns out that if you ask a yes-no interrogative formatted question, people are going to say yes to gift aid, more likely than not. A yes-no question, gift aid that today, yes or no? If you ask an alternative interrogative format with options, people are likely to opt for standard. Now, if, you want to, if you're offering people options and you want them to pick one, you should put the one you want them to pick last. So there is an order effect in terms of the options. But nevertheless, the yes-no format works best to get people to say yes to gift aid. And my interest in this in particular is that the verb is will. 
and would is the past tense of will. And it's a similar type of moral environment to are you willing to mediate? What are you willing to do? In the art gallery, you're middle class. You're in an art gallery. You're already paying eight pounds. You're going to pay eight pounds 80 and support the arts, yes or no? Are you that kind of person? Most people say yes to gift aid. Okay. Hopefully now you can start to see how all of this work can underpin a method for training people to communicate better or communicate effectively or however you want to think about it. Because probably most of you in this room at some point in your professional lives will have been trained to communicate. You might have had your, your, your communication skills assessed or something like that. And probably what you did was some kind of role play. And I'm going to talk about the problem with role play in a minute. Once you know your racetrack, once you've got evidence for how things work at each point along the racetrack, you can then start to use it to train people. And I've done that a lot with mediators and lawyers, police, medics, and salespeople. And you can see how it works. So you have a transcript. It comes out line by line. It's real people. It allows you to live through real encounters of professionals doing the job that might be your job and then think about what you might do next. So you can stop the transcript and think, what would you do next? Like we saw with the mediator, trying to get the turnaround from the resistant client to the client. And then you can see what a real practitioner did next and evaluate that. So you're kind of role-playing. I call this the conversation analytic role-play method. You're kind of role-playing, but with real, real scenarios, real life, not hypothetical scenarios or actors or simulated interlocutors. So, lots of different projects. One of the ones that Ryan and I are working on most recently is with the Met here in London. Another really dramatic setting. The setting is hostage negotiators talking to negotiatees. And it turns out that hostage negotiation isn't most of the work. Most of the work is trying to stop people who are on a course of action towards committing suicide. And the police record these encounters at the scene, and we can study them. Now, the training that the police get to be hostage negotiators, to be with people in these most dramatic settings of their lives is sophisticated, and the officers are also very sophisticated. But nevertheless, there are things that we can identify that finesse and further specify what works and what works less well when a hostage negotiator is trying to stop somebody committing suicide. And one of the really obvious things when you start to look at these encounters is keep people talking. It's clearly something that you need to do. But is there some ways of keeping people talking that work better than others? And the answer is yes. Just one example. I'm not going to play this data. But one thing that we found is that if the police officers, the, the negotiators, produce turns that are easy for the negotiator to agree with quickly, which is fairly obvious maybe, but what are those turns that, that are easier for the negotiator to align with? Some of these also halt the negotiator's course of action. So, for example, we've got a case that we were looking at where the person, the negotiator, has a noose around their neck and they're stood on a chair. And we know those types of scenarios on the television. Very painful for us to listen to them when it's real. 
And the negotiator is saying, it's happening, I'm doing it, I'm doing it now. And the negotiator says, it doesn't have to happen yet, though, does it? And the negotiator says, no, straight away. So it slows it down straight away. The skill is knowing that that slowdown is something that seems to work. It seems to get the slowdown. Saying it doesn't have to happen now is something that's quite easy to agree with. Sometimes, though, it turns out that the officer can't hang on to it. So it's like they've been given an inch, but they take a yard. So what happens next is, it doesn't have to happen at all. Yes, it does. So you've gone from the slowdown to a speed up again. And what we can see, we can pinpoint that moment of seeing what works and then staying there and not moving on to, it doesn't have to I've got you to say it doesn't have to happen now, so I'm going to chance it and say it doesn't have to happen at all. But then, you get, then that doesn't work and it's, you, it, you're back on the trajectory you don't want to be on. So these are the sorts of things that we can find and then use to really specify things that work in these kinds of settings. So, conversation analytic role-play method is used to train professionals of all kinds. What problem is it solving as a method? And I think it's solving a particular kind of problem that is endemic in the world of communication training and guidance, which I've become interested in simply because I wanted to find out, if I'm doing this, what am I the alternative to? What does the communication training world look like? And what it looks like is hypothetical scenarios. It's simulations. So if you think about medical training, for example, medics are trained using simulated patients. Actors playing the part of patients, or patients playing the part of patients, or the doctors playing the part of patients, and that's how the training works. How authentic are conversations that are simulated? Do they look like the real thing? If they don't, and someone is being assessed on what they do in a simulation, that could be problematic if they're failing the simulation. And what's the point of a simulation if it's not actually managing to reproduce an authentic interaction? What are you actually learning? So these are tricky questions. And when it comes to the research, there is research on the authenticity of, of simulation, but it's something like, you've just been in a simulation, did it feel authentic? Yes or no? Or, you've just been in a simulation and you're a doctor training, you were in a simulation with a student playing the part of a patient, and you were in a simulation with a patient playing the part of a patient, and you were in a simulation with a doctor playing the part of a patient, and you were in the simulation with an actor playing the part of the patient, which mo felt most authentic? And that's the kind of research. I'm caricaturing a bit, but that's it. And what there isn't is research that compares the real thing with the simulation. So I've done some work looking at the real thing, and the simulation. And the setting that I've used is police interrogations, because I've done quite a lot of work on real police interrogations of suspects and also interviews with, with victims and witnesses. And what the, do, the police do, of course, when, the, when they're training, they get actors in to play the part of suspects. And I started to think about how that would look. How, when the police are using actors playing the part of suspects, does that look like when police are interviewing real, real suspects? Whose stake in the encounter is quite different. A real suspect might go to prison. An actor playing the part of a suspect is going to get paid to do that job. So you can already start to see that maybe there will be some differences. Okay. 
I'm going to end with a test for you. Let's see what you've learned. This is people telephoning their GP surgeries. And again, Ryan and I are doing a project now looking at thousands of calls to different surgeries, looking at people telephoning the surgery. And one of our interests is in, obviously, in the constraints of the NHS and the kinds of things that can ever be offered to patients when they phone their GP surgeries. Nevertheless, if you're going to turn someone down for something or they can't get an appointment today or even till next week or next month, how, how best to smooth the racetrack? What can you nevertheless do to make these encounters as smooth as possible? So in this call, you're going to see the surgery answering the phone and I've anonymized them as Limetown Surgery and the receptionist as Christine. So you're going to hear Limetown Surgery, Christine speaking, can I help? So the, the caller, hello, um, I'm sorry to trouble you. I wonder if, um, am I eligible for a flu jab? That's what they want to know. So let's see what happens next. What's your name, please? What's your name, please? Okay, so maybe we need to know your name before we proceed to, to fulfill the request. And now the caller will come back with their name, which I've anonymized as Moira Anderson. Okay, now nine seconds. That's quite painful silence, isn't it? Okay, so we're not quite sure what's happening there. And then? Uh, yes, you are. Okay, now my question to you, just to think about in your own heads there privately, is is the call over? Receptionist thinks it is. They've come to the end of what they're going to say at this point. It's a bit like, have you got the time, please? Yes, I have. <laughs> could you tell me the time, please? Yes, I could. <laughs> you're answering the question, but you're not understanding the, the, the force of what's behind it, which is a request to do something. What's going to happen next isn't particularly helpful, so we get a little bit of silence. And then this is where we really need the transcript detail, because if this was a bog-standard transcript, what you would see is, yes, you are eligible for one, as if it was a complete thing, but we're seeing that actually there's space there for the caller to come back, but they, they, they're like, hmm. And then... Eligible for one. So, okay, you haven't added anything. You've told me that you're completing the sentence, but you're not really adding anything new to, to drive this forward. Uh, and then so the caller is having to say... <laughs> Quite. Is it up to me to... You know, like something hasn't happened yet. What's, what hasn't happened yet? Well, maybe this hasn't happened yet. Um, I can book you in. Can you? <laughs> Why not do it much further up the call? Why not fill the silence with, I'm just looking for you. I'm just filling, I'm just filling in that long silence and saying, I'm just checking on the computer for you. And then saying, you are eligible. Shall I book you in? So what we found is that there's a huge burden on the patient to drive the call. And what we found overall is that surgeries with poor results on the National GP Patient Survey, on the question about experience of making an appointment, have significantly more patient burden in their front-of-house calls. So what they're doing is, could you tell me the time, please? Yes, I could. So could you tell me the time, please? Yes, I could. And they're not doing the thing that is actually behind, as if they don't understand what, what that would mean. Okay, my take-home messages. First of all, I hope you've now come to see how if you change words, you can change outcomes. Small changes, big difference. It's also really important that 
we get to know what works empirically, scientifically, not by guessing, not by thinking we can inspect our memories and know what works, not by thinking we know about talk, but by recording things, finding out what's there in the world, and then turning that into training or policy or guidance. You need to know your racetrack. You need to know what's on it, what's coming up towards you, what you might need to deal with. And finally, I'm hoping that you've learned something tonight. You've learned the difference between questions that start with any and questions that start with some, or have those words in them. And you've learned about the power of willing. So what I would ask you to do is to use your powers for the good and not the bad. And don't ask people to do things and ask them if they're willing to do it, unless they're things for the good and, and not for the bad. And I'm really hoping that that bell's going to ring now, because my clock says nine o'clock, but I'm done. Well, thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, I have to be careful what I, what I actually say, I suppose, after, <laughs> after that. Uh, can I sort of exercise my, my normal host's uh, privilege and ask the first question? You, you framed this in the beginning with, with reference to Chomsky. And I was just wondering whether there's empirical work in other countries and other languages which will bear out that this is a sort of universal pattern of language. It's not just some sort of peculiar, peculiarly English uh, yeah. uh, form. Absolutely. Conversation analyst starts with action. So quite often people will say things to me like, yeah, yeah, but men and women talk differently. Or it must be to do with culture. Well, the French say it talk differently or something like that. So people start with an assumption that there are going to be those sorts of differences. But we start with action and how actions are built. So if you think about something like a complaint, does a culture have complaints in it? Most cultures have probably complaints or might have complaints. So if we look at how a complaint gets built, it turns out that there probably are different ways of doing it, but they're not different in terms of different cultures. Some languages provide for different sorts of actions, maybe, or different ways of doing an action, but the actions are probably the same and constant. Yeah. Right, I see quite a few hands, one over there. Well, that was fascinating, thank you very much. What I'd like to know is, how does this transform or transfer to the written word? Do the, do the same techniques apply in the written word? I had a PhD student, Jo Meredith, who is now at Salford University, I'll give her the name check, and she looked at people writing on Facebook, instant chat, and what she did was live screen capture of people writing uh, and how they were constructing their turns on Facebook. And her question was about both what is similar and what is different to spoken interaction. And one of the things that she found is very similar, for example, is as you start to build a turn at talk, sometimes you might stop yourself, fix it, and move on. So you might say something like, and did you, did you, because you've said something wrong in the way you've started to build it. And very similar, when you're writing in Facebook, you will start to build an action, monitor what you're doing, and then change it. So very, absolutely transferable to the written word. One of the best things about her project, she didn't really write about this because we didn't know what, quite what to say, but it was very interesting, about how many X's people put at the end. <laughs> so she had videos of people doing X, 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 delete two, po <laughs> post three. <laughs> yeah. So there's a whole paper in how many X's and how people seem to decide and, co and calibrate how many X's they're going to put at the end. Okay. Oh, hello. Uh, 
My name is Tom Lawson. I'm the chief executive of Leap Confronting Conflict, a, a charity that works with young people who are caught up in violence. My question is not about the young people, but is the, uh, my question is around funding for charities. And I wondered if you had done any work around uh, how to go about asking for money uh, and whether you'd be willing to share that with us. <laughs> if I had done it, I'd be very willing to share it with you because I'm lovely. But um, there is work on, on organ donation. So I haven't done that work myself, but if you email me, I could send you the, the, the paper. Um, so there is a little bit of work in that, in that territory of getting people to do um, philanthropic sorts of things. Yeah. So the, the techniques that you'd show where you annotate things and then you're analysing, is that all done meticulously by hand or is there st sort of computational techniques for doing that these days? <laughs> I get asked that a lot as well. Um, no, you have to, it's, it's the first stage of analysis to produce the transcript. So a computer can't do it. Um, my colleague over here, Ryan, is a phonetician and he's extra specially good at producing those transcripts. Um, but we have to do it manually. There is no shortcut. Yeah. Maybe one day, but not yet. Okay, in the gallery and then, then here. Hi, that was creepily awesome, and I say, black dress is good, pointy black hat, perhaps not. My <laughs> question is more that uh, software estimation, when I ask somebody, this is something that's almost like this, that I came across by accident, you ask somebody who you want to know how long a project is going to take, they're in charge of the project, they're writing some of the software themselves, they probably know more than you do, they give you an answer, you say, this is the bit that I discovered, was how... how what factors might make it take longer? And you give them 30 seconds or so to say, well, uh, somebody might be unwell. We might be taking um, a holiday or something like that. And after that, you say, and what chances are that it'll be shorter? Which they usually get a blank look because all software writers give you the shortest possible time, which the best I've ever come up with, and IBM has done no better, is multiplied by about two and a half. Now, can you think of a way of improving this or maybe or <laughs> faulting this method? Because I've never found a way of doing it any better. Um, I'm usually reluctant to give advice like that because what I don't want to do is what people would generally do, and that is guess the thing that would work. What I would do is have a look at these conversations, find out the ones where you did manage to successfully get people to do the thing you wanted them to do, and see what was working in those conversations and build the finding from there. It's quite important to not just guess at what might work, but to start with real life and build up from there. So I'm not going to fudge an answer to that. That's, that's my answer. Please. Um, I was curious if there's any research that's done about how different kind of demographic kind of categories affect the way that these play out, especially the demographics uh, or status of the asker relative to the respondent. So, my PhD was looking at gender particularly, so there's loads and loads of research that says that men and women talk differently, and it's quite hard to find that when you look at naturally occurring talk. So, you, it's one of those things where you, you can try to make those arguments, but if you look at, for example, how a request is done, so a bit like the, the question that was asked right at the start, um, about culture. If you start with action rather than the categories which people immediately reach to, which are going to be the things that they think are going to explain difference, those differences very often fall away. 
And it's not that something like gender or power isn't relevant to interaction. It's just that we don't start there. We start with action and then see how different sorts of actions get built and how, um, for example, a request is done differently or um, a complaint is done differently or an offer is done differently. And those things tend not to fall away along the obvious categories of gender or class or education. They tend to fall away with different sorts of things to explain them. Please, and then over, over here. Yeah, uh, I'm a medical student and will certainly go Thank away you. with a, a different view on our teaching. Um, but <laughs> you, you spoke about awkward silences in speech being greater than a tenth of a second. Mm. Are there any um, situations where you found that silence is actually an effective method of eliciting a greater response? So... What I would say about silence is that it's a strange... People tend to think of silence as an inert thing. If you're face-to-face -face with somebody and there's silence, then it tends to actually be a rather active thing rather than nothing happening. So, for example, the longest silence that I've ever recorded was in a police interrogation, and it was something like 11.6 seconds. And the police officer is asking the suspect something like, OK, Mr Jones, if you were kicked in the head with the same force that you kicked person X, what do you think the injuries would be? And what they're after is intent. There's a very long silence then. But it's not just like this. Silence isn't like that. The person is moving, they're sort of umming and ahhing and so on, and eventually the suspect says, I can't really deal with that question. So the, the police officer waits it out, and eventually, if you like, the waiting out might get someone to respond, but it might not get the response that you want. Silence is also different in different bits of interaction. So, again, if you, if you sort of try staying silent if someone is talking to you and they're, they're telling you a trouble that happened today and you just, just, just stay silent and do that inert thing, that it's going it's to be very odd. It's quite hard to do. So silence tends to not be the thing we think it is because it's not inert. If you wait a long time in response to an answer, then the other person might start talking. But generally, we don't have that inert silence that we, th that we think silence is. So it doesn't really look quite like we think it might when we look at it empirically. Okay, please. Uh, so, okay, Macron's gone over there. Hi, thanks. Uh, I've got a particular conversational pet hate, which is to be honest, or if I'm being honest. I was just wondering if you know how these things begin and is it likely to die out at any point? <laughs> what was the second part of the question? Is it, uh, is it likically to die out? Is it likely to die out? It it's, it's, um, tends to be idiosyncratic. Some people say things like, to be honest, and others don't. Some people say, to be fair. To be fair is the one I don't like, and I don't know why, to be fair. A colleague of mine at Loughborough, Derek Edwards, has done a whole paper on, to be honest, uh, <laughs> which I can send you. And it tends to crop up in particular environments, and it tends to crop up when people are doing what we would call a dispreferred action. And we had one in, in the talk today. So when the uh, caller was saying, I don't want to mediate, she said, well, to be honest, I don't really think they'd cooperate. And we have those to be honests that in turn downs or in those environments where you're doing something which probably wasn't hoped for by the, by the person who was talking to you first. And it's clear that they're doing something interactional in, in that kind of way. So I can send you the paper. I don't know if it's going to die out anytime soon. Um, but they are doing something quite specific in interaction. Hello. I think I should probably confess that I'm a psychologist. And I was Me very, too. <laughs> <laughs> I was very interested in uh, one of the 
difficult examples that you gave about the parents with the neonatal mm. situation. Um, I remember reading a few years ago some research that in that situation, uh, parents often find it a lot easier to have a doctor's recommendation because of the guilt. Mm. Um, and I wonder whether the findings that, that you've uh, discovered are about it being a different stage, or, or what, what's that about? Um, it, it's a really interesting question, because I think there's a, there's a kind of norm now that patients should be involved in everything, and that decision-making should be shared. And that's a starting position for a lot of training that that's just become a norm, a bit like you know, child-centred education or something like that, or student-centred, that, that somehow the professional should really dumb it down a bit or rein it back a bit because these things should be more equal. Um, I'm agnostic about that in the first place. Some patients want a recommendation, some want to be more involved, so maybe there's some um, adaptation that needs to happen there. The thing that seems to cause the conflict is in the best interests of the child, particularly. Um, and I think the, re the reason for that seems to be that if the doctor is recommending something in the best interest of your child and you want to ask them a question about it that might not be quite what I'm doing following your recommendation, then you get this immediate misalignment between the parties. And you, we have cases where horrible things get said. So the parents are saying things like, so basically you're telling me to kill my baby then. And they don't want to go along with that. So it's the best interests of the baby, which is so foregrounded in the guidance, which seems to cause the most problem in the encounters. Perhaps so, so the recommendation with a in a different setting, in a different context without that is probably better. We also know that when options get listed, as I sort of indicated before, doctors will put probably the thing that they are recommending last, because we tend to go with the thing that happens last. So there are ways of sneaking in a recommendation in a way that seems much more patient-centered. Uh, I've been just, um, mostly surprised by your results, but not entirely. But I'm wondering whether your surprise in what you're finding diminishes. Uh, in other words, can you predict at all what's going to happen? Are you finding that any principles are formulating themselves as to what is going on <coughs> as a generality? Or do you have to take every specific situation, every specific sort of person, um, every specific change of tense and so on, and look at that without any... Um, I think I'm probably as good as, as other people at, kind, at spotting a, the trajectory where someone is going with the thing that they're doing right now. Other people... Give, ascribe special skills to conversation and listen are a bit nervous to have a conversation with you. Um, certainly my mum thinks that I'm analysing her all the time. Uh, but I, th I think, no, I mean, my, my, you know, it, it's quite hard to do it live. So uh, the skill is to, to look at it afterwards, to look at the recording and the transcript afterwards. So when I'm actually live in the moment, I'm probably no better than anybody else at just trying to spot where things are going and figure it out and, and have my turns at talk. When it comes to looking at encounters... Quite often I'm looking at very specialist sorts of talk. So, for example, the hostage negotiation. I didn't really have much idea of what that would look like before looking at it. Um, real life, again, a bit like the police interrogations that I've looked at. They're nothing like the television. You know, they don't seem to be in a darkened room and no one's doing anything threatening. They look quite different. So, 
with some of it, I think I'm probably as surprised as anybody would be looking at a setting which is not my profession and, and trying to understand what goes on there. And one, no, no, okay, one, and one, one last question. Um, your dialogue seemed to me to be uh, very theatrical, very filmic, and I wondered if there was any um, playwright or, or a scriptwriter who has appealed to you, inspired you initially or along the way? I, I guess that comes from the fact that the transcript has the speaker and the, and the, the script out like that, but um, I have to say no, um, not particularly. I mean, I kind of get interested in dialogue on the screen, um, what looks particularly authentic and what doesn't look authentic. Uh, so, you know, th those f um, shots of, of television soaps where the, 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 the faces are both there together, they seem to be very close together, which you sort of think that n never looks authentic, and that sort of dialogue where no one is overlapping and no one is sort of interrupting. So the most authentic-looking scripts are the ones where you see mess, maybe, rather than neat, neat sort of joins between all the turns, which we know doesn't really happen uh, in naturally occurring dialogue. Okay, well, thank you. It just, just remains for me to thank you so much for super discourse that's been shown by all the uh, questions and issues raised. I'm sorry there have been a few people who haven't had a chance, but uh, I'm sure we'll have you back again at some point to talk about it. So thank you so much. That's it for this month, thanks for listening. If you like this episode and you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. <laughs>